session. We're going to be talking about Protestant church music and the contributions of Charles Wesley. Early Christian church or liturgical music grew out of the music that was performed in the Jewish synagogue. In the synagogue, the cantor or chanter or singer would sing an improvised, solo, charismatic, meaning inspired, song and lead congregational singing and pray in song. In many Jewish congregations, prayers are sung, not spoken. Uh, also, many cantors are also rabbis, so it's an integral part of the synagogue service. Early Christian services contained simple refrains or responsorials sung by the congregation. And this evolved over time into various chants, such as the Gregorian chant, which reached its greatest development in the Latin West by 800 A.D., Here you see a Jewish cantor in a synagogue, and I'm now going to play a clip of a cantor singing. There's the congregation joining in. A chant is the iterative or repetitive speaking or singing of words or sounds, often primarily on one or two main pitches called reciting tones. Chants may range from a simple melody involving a limited set of notes to highly complex musical structures. Chant may be considered speech, music, or a heightened or stylized form of speech. In the latter Middle Ages, some religious chant evolved into songs and hymns. Pope Gregory I, while not the inventor of chant, was acknowledged as the first person to order such music in the church, hinting at the name Gregorian chant. So we don't know if Pope Gregory actually wrote the chants that are called Gregorian chants, but these chants come from this era when he was the pope. And here you see uh, a, a rendering of monks in a monastery, uh, and they are singing a Gregorian chant. Yeah, 
Vitata Spiritus Sancti, Omnis Honor et Gloria, Per Omnia Secula Seculorum. Amen. Recepti Salutaribus Moniti, Et Divina Institutione Formati, Okay, so I think you can hear in that clip the call and response, the solo singer and the chorus or congregation responding. Um, and you could also note um, there were a limited set of notes. It sounded like the same notes being sung over and over again, kind of in the same tempo, and although the, the singer is speaking different words, saying different words in that chant. And this is what is known as monophonic chant. So monophonic Gregorian chant uh, came out of essentially Pope Gregory's idea that complexity tended to create cacophony. Cacophony is the, the effect of just jumbled sounds, discordant notes. It's unpleasant, it's chaotic. You can't hear what people are singing. You know, a lot of modern music, <laughs> modern popular music would sound cacophonic to, uh, you know, people from the Middle Ages. They would, they would be like, how can you even know what is being sung? This doesn't sound like music, it sounds like noise. And the idea was to keep the notes uh, limited in range, simple, and the emphasis is, now again, they were singing Latin, we don't know Latin, but presumably the people, some of the people hearing these chants, the more educated ones who knew Latin would be able to understand what was being sung. Um, and I should also note that the Eastern Orthodox Church also has elaborately developed chants. 
and the entire divine liturgy, what Roman Catholics would call the Mass, is often chanted in the Eastern worship services. Um, so the whole thing can be chanted. Sometimes in the West, um, they will chant the entire Mass. Uh, in the Anglican churches, sometimes if it's really high church, they'll sing almost the entire Mass. Um, so, you know, uh, priests and other religious um, people fulfilling religious roles in the church, it would really help if they were good singers. <laughs> because they would often be called upon, uh, you know, to sing large portions of the Mass. Also, the Eastern Church has developed eight modes or tones with, within which a chant may be set, depending on the time of year, feast day, or other considerations of the church calendar and the liturgy. So again, in the Eastern Church, um, chanting is still practiced widely throughout many uh, types of Eastern Orthodox churches, and uh, it's an integral part of the service. Monophonic chants, also known as plain chant, are chants where only a melody or tune is sung by a single singer or played by a single instrument player without a harmony or chords. Music sung by choirs or multiple singers can be monophonic or polyphonic. Polyphony is a type of music consisting of two or more simultaneous lines of independent melody or music with one dominant melodic voice accompanied by chords and or harmony. And of course, the type of music we enjoy here at GCF would be definitely polyphonic. Scholars differ as to when European musical forms move from being predominantly monophonic songs to polyphonic music. By approximately 1200 to 1300, European music, both religious and secular, was beginning to exhibit increasing complexity and polyphony, and styles were beginning to be merged. Now, the notion of secular and sacred music merging in the Roman Catholic papal court also offended some medieval ears. So, you know, you had both secular music, you know, you had the wandering minstrels of the medieval era who might be playing a lute or a flute or some type of instrument uh, who would wander through the villages singing songs, singing popular ballads and folk tunes and um, other types of secular music and many of the church authorities, as is true in our day today, were concerned about the uh, merging rather of musical styles. So they didn't want any secular stuff cre or, uh, creeping in to uh, the church music. Throughout the ancient and medieval eras, most church and liturgical music was produced simply by the human voice without any instrumental accompaniment. The introduction of church organ music is traditionally believed to date from the time of the papacy of Pope Vitalian in the 700s. Although it is one of the most complex of all musical instruments, the organ has the longest and most involved history and the largest and oldest extant or existing repertoire of any instrument in Western music. The earliest known organ was the hydraulis of the 3rd century BC. 
a rudimentary or kind of primitive Greek invention. And the wind that was going through the pipes was regulated by water pressure. And that was known as the water organ. And there are still water organs in existence today. Um, and you can, uh, you know, look up water organ, Google water organ on, the, uh, on Google or, or the internet somewhere. And you can find some interesting stuff. The pipe organ is a keyboard instrument. This is the organ as we know it better today, of course. Operated by the player's hands and feet in which pressurized air produces notes through a series of pipes organized in scale-like rows. By the 8th century, organs were being built in Europe, and from the 10th century, their association with the church had been established. The 15th and 16th centuries wit witnessed major tonal and mechanical advances and the emergence of national schools of organ building. So while some people were busy uh, developing the printing press, there were a lot of other people busy working on the organ and making it better and better. And here you see a picture of a pipe organ in a church, a medieval era pipe organ in a church in France. And uh, we're now gonna hear a, a selection from Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, perhaps one of the most famous organ pieces, and I'm sure you'll recognize this. By the early 17th century, all the essential elements of the instrument had been developed, and later developments involved either tonal changes or technological refinements. And it was during the high Baroque period that the organ reached its greatest popularity and found its most important composer in Johann Sebastian Bach, who lived from 1685 to 1750. Uh, and I think most people are familiar with Bach, and maybe most of you have heard some organ, pipe organ music at some point, uh, you know, and if you ever have the opportunity to attend a concert uh, in a church where there is a pipe organ to hear live organ music, I recommend you go. It's stunning. There existed at this time two principal schools of organ building, the French with its colorful reeds and mutations, and the German and Dutch with their outstanding choruses. The pipe organ is ideally suited to accompany human voices, 
whether a congregation, a choir, or a cantor, or soloist. It provides a musical foundation below the vocal register, support in the vocal register, and increased brightness above the vocal register. So when, I, when I'm talking about vocal register, I'm talking about the range of uh, uh, the human voice. So it can you know, support the low notes, it can enhance the notes in the middle, and it can um, you know, bring a lot of brilliance or brightness to the, the really high notes above what a human could sing. It is inherently polyphonic, of course, and capable of producing many varieties, styles, and types of music. And of course, now today we have many different types of organs. We have electronic organs, and there are other types of organs. But essentially, the organ is just an in instrument that blows air through pipes, producing musical notes. How that air gets blown through the pipes depends on um, the, the power source, so to speak. So in effect, the pipe organ, which is a single instrument, is like having a whole symphony orchestra within a religious space. Now, some churches, very large churches, can afford to have, you know, or hire orchestras to play within the, the church or cathedral, but the, the ability of a church to sustain that, you know, Sunday after Sunday would be just about impossible. Certainly, pipe organs are extremely expensive. Um, there's no question that's a big expense in and of itself, and today many churches who have pipe or organs are challenged with the upkeep and repair of a pipe organ, and also finding uh, a talented organist is not easy. With the development of vocal and instrumental music, the need to have a way of notating music so that songs, chants, hymns, and the mass could be repeated and performed as first sung became very important. The scholar and music theorist Isidore of Seville, writing in the early seventh century, considered that unless sounds are held by the memory of man, they perish because they cannot be written down. Roman Catholic monks developed the first forms of modern Western musical notation in order to standardize liturgy throughout the worldwide church. And here you see a part of an English 14th century manuscript that shows musical notes to sing as part of a mass. Now the language is in Latin. This is pretty hard for us to read and understand, but you've got a large letter P with a picture, it's actually a picture of Jesus that's been uh, colored in the circle of the P. And the first word there is pater, or Latin for father. Um, but there's something missing. Okay, so what is it that's missing? Well, how do we know how fast to sing those notes? There's no indication about the meter or the speed of how quickly to sing those notes. The founder of what is now considered the standard music staff was Guido D'Arezzo, an Italian Benedictine monk who lived from about 991 until after 1033. He taught the use of solmization syllables, or solfeggio, based on a hymn to St. John the Baptist, 
which begins ut, quiunt, laxus, and was written by the Lombard historian Paul the Deacon. So there's a song that they use to help people find the notes and, and recognize the scale, uh, you know, basically starting with middle C or natural C. And later, this system became the familiar do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do system that we know of today. Do is believed to have been taken either from the name of the Italian theorist, Giovanni Battista Doni, or from the Latin word dominus, meaning Lord. And of course, if you've studied any music at all, you quickly learn that musical terms are Italian. So even though you know, we're no longer doing Latin, if you study music and you learn to read music, there's going to be a lot of things to learn uh, with Latin, or rather Italian terms. So the Italians gave us a lot in the way of building a structure for writing and preserving music. Church music developed during the Protestant Reformation into two schools of thought, the regulative and normative principles of worship based on reformers John Calvin and Martin Luther. They derived their concepts in response to the Catholic Church music, which they found distracting and too ornate. Both principles also pursued use of the native tongue either alongside or in place of liturgical Latin. One of the most notable changes of the Reformation was the way in which Christians worshiped through music. Before and during the Reformation, much Roman Catholic worship music consisted of complex choral works, Gregorian plain chant, as we've discussed, and responsive songs in praise of God and in honor of the Virgin Mary. Protestant reformers, however, sought to change Catholicism's perceived, quote, dangers of overly theatrical performances, the unwarranted expense of elaborate ceremonies and enormous pipe organs, and the uselessness of text unintelligible to the common man. So the normative principle gives an elastic interpretation to the Bible and God's intention about worship music, believing that what scripture does not forbid, it allows. If scripture allows something, then it is not unlawful, and what is not unlawful may lawfully be done. This doctrine gives great artistic and creative freedom in organizing worship services and composing hymns. Followers of this principle often incorporated organ and other instruments into church music and were not as rigid as followers of the regulative principle on restricting the combination of various mediums of worship. I don't know if any of you have heard of certain churches today that do not allow any musical instruments in their churches. All singing is done simply, you know, the human voice unaccompanied. Um, and it's, it comes out of an idea of, well, since there aren't mu musical instruments mentioned in the New Testament, and our churches follow the New Testament, we aren't going to have any musical instruments. Um, so that would be more along the lines of the regulative principle. But the normative principle is an approach that says, essentially, 
Everything that God has given us that isn't forbidden in scripture can be put to good use. So we can have violins and pianos and guitars and drums and every other musical instrument. We can have people singing solos and we can have the whole congregation singing together. We could sing very simple songs with simple plain melodies or we could have very complex songs. We could have choirs, we, you know, in other words, it's kind of wide open. And some, some people, you know, and again, if you think of contemporary Christian music, the normative principle, you know, if you really want to take it to its extreme, you could say, well, that, you know, if, if we can do whatever scripture does not expressly forbid, then we can have all kinds of Christian-oriented music. We can have Christian rock. We can have Christian rap. These secular, so-called secular art forms can be Christianized. So, you know, if, if you hear Christian rap or Christian rock or, or some other uh, musical form um, that derives a lot of inspiration and, and its structure from what most people would think of as sec- secular music, and you feel, you know, gee, this is okay, this is cool. I'm glad we have Christian rock. I'm gr- glad we have Christian rap. Um, then you are following what is essentially the normative principle. So the most notable form follower uh, during the Reformation of the normative principle was Martin Luther. Being a friar, Roman Catholic uh, monk, Luther's life was steeped in the musical traditions of Roman chant, and he had a deep love for music as a singer, a lutenist. In other words, he played the lute, which is an early form of a guitar, stringed stringed instrument, and composer. Luther would make use of his musical skills to become a tool for promoting the teaching reforms of the Reformation. Luther's hymns date from 1523 to 1543. The earliest Lutheran hymnal was written in 1524 with eight hymns by Luther and Paul Sparatus, another Lutheran. Luther wrote 37 hymns which survive today, though he perhaps wrote additional texts which were passed around informally. He also wrote Masses and Chants. Can anybody think of a hymn by Martin Luther uh, that you have heard of? John Gray. A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Yeah, that's probably one of the best knowns of Luther's hymns. And one of the other best known is Onward Christian Soldiers. Many Protestant reformers drawing from the Bible and the concept of sola scriptura, Latin for by scripture alone, argued that worship music ought to be derived directly from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And this concept came to be known as the regulative principle. In other words, scripture is going to totally confine us in terms of what musical forms, types, and uh, how, what words we're going to sing, and the focus for the regulative principle is singing the psalms. Its proponents believe that since worship is divine in its origin, and that God intended mankind to worship him through scripture only, the Bible serves as God's revelation to man on how he is to be worshipped. 
So the Bible, we can not only read the Bible, but we can use it as material for songs in uh, worship services. This point of view often resulted in only using scripture as material for music that is sung by human voices only. So again, a more restrictive approach is we're just going to use biblical texts for our songs. We're not going to express biblical ideas in other words. And um, if you want to be really strictly regulative, no instruments, no instrumental accompaniment. John Calvin, remember we've talked about him, 1509 to 1564, was a regulative principal supporter who encouraged worship music. Calvin's attitude towards music in the church was complex. He was extremely cautious about how worship music was utilized because he believed God laid out very specific directions in the Bible on how to worship. For example, Calvin initially allowed the use of instruments in worship music, but urged a careful use of them so as not to pollute worship with worldly or Roman Catholic influences. So again, there's that idea of, you know, not only are people who follow the regulative principle concerned with just focusing on the, using the words of scripture as the basis for songs and hymns, um, but they also, you know, because they're reformers, they don't want any Roman Catholic influences. So again, the pipe organ and big choirs and, and things. Um, you, you know, sometimes Christian worship can be more performance than it, than it is actually where the congregation is participating and being fully involved in worship. Um, and that can happen in any church. Um, you know, if you rely on a particular group of musicians to just stand up at the front of the church, play worship songs, and you just sit back in the pew and observe and don't really participate, okay, well, then maybe what you've done is you've attended a performance, maybe not so much been involved in worship. One element which Calvin added to worship music was children's choirs. This is definitely a plus. Um, children's choirs are great. He believed that children could teach adults simplicity, childlike devotion, and a sincere heart when singing, even though the children might not sing as well as adults. His use of the vernacular or the common language of the people in the singing of the Psalms made worship music easy to sing and understand. His simple melodies and children's choirs encouraged congregational participation in worship services. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever heard of a hymn written by Charles, uh, or rather, um, John Calvin. Maybe they're out there. I don't know. I don't know if anybody's singing them. I don't know if they're kind of lost to history. Uh, I think it's interesting that while some of Luther's hymns are still sung to this day. Um, as far as I know, not a lot of people are singing what Calvin wrote. So, I don't know. During the same time period uh, that Calvin and Luther were active on the mainland, the continent of Europe, England too was influenced and experienced its own distinct Reformation movement. We've talked a lot about that. Despite breaking from Rome, the Church of England retained many of the ecclesiastical traditions of, of Catholic services to the dismay of more conservative English Christians. 
English Protestant music emerged as its own distinct genre during and after the Reformation. And in some ways, it reflected elements of Calvinism. For instance, Calvinist psalmodies were exceedingly popular in mid-16th century England. English congregations also utilized materials which would be considered more Lutheran uh, or norm, you know, the normative principle in style, including broadside ballads based on common folk tunes, which were repurposed for religious use. Uh, if you've ever heard of the tune Green Sleeves, uh, Green Sleeves can be have a religious orientation, and there's another set of uh, lyrics to Green Sleeves, the tune, uh, that's very different. Another source of worship material in English churches was the second book of common prayer commissioned by the Protestant king Edward VI in 1552. English clergymen and composers began to form a unique canon or body of English worship music distinct from that of continental Europe. Perhaps the most notable early Anglican Protestant composer was Isaac Watts, known as the father of English hymnody. And uh, this is, yeah, that's fairly dark. Hopefully you can sort of see it. But Isaac Watts, born in 1674, died 1748, was an English congregational minister and when, and when you see the word congregational, think dissenter, think nonconformist, think Puritan, uh, minister, hymn writer, theologian, and logician. This was one really smart guy. He wrote textbooks in logic that were used at Oxford University. He was a prolific and popular hymn writer and is credited with some 750 hymns. His works include When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Joy to the world, we sing that at Christmas. And our God, our help in ages past. I'm sure you've heard that one. Okay, Watts broke with Calvinist theology regarding church music by altering his arrangements of the Psalms to better reflect Christian elements found only in the New Testament, as shown by the title of his work, The Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. Many of Watts' hymns are included in hymnals of today in many different denominations. Another prominent English composer of the time was Benjamin Keach, 1640 to 1704, a minister and leader of the particular Baptist denomination. Now, just a little footnote here or an aside, we are going to talk about the Baptists. We haven't really talked about them except little bits here and there. I am going to devote at least two, um, probably two, um, presentations to the English Baptists. Again, not to be confused with the Anabaptists in Switzerland and Germany. Um, rather different in their thinking and how they functioned. Um, but Keach was a particular Baptist, and as you'll find out, there are many different types of particular Baptists uh, that we'll get into later. Keach is thought to be responsible for being the first songwriter to popularize the singing of hymns in England. Keach's song collection, titled A Feast of Fat Things, became a staple in many English Protestant churches. 
Now, during the same time period, there's a reformation going on in Scotland. And this had a significant impact on church music. The song schools of the abbeys, cathedrals, and collegiate churches were closed down, choirs disbanded, music books and manuscripts destroyed, and organs removed from churches. Now, if you think about it, probably a lot of organs got destroyed in the Reformation because what are these reformers doing? They're going into what were formerly Roman Catholic churches, tearing down the statues, defacing, you know, uh, if there are paintings on the wall, they're defacing them or removing them. They're um, destroying sculptures. There are, you know, cathedrals throughout uh, Europe and England where you can go and see on, on the outside walls of the cathedral where there were sculptures. The faces have been smashed off. Um, and this is because of the iconoclastic um, thrust of some reformers. In other words, we are not going to violate the second commandment. We are not going to make images that we worship and bow down to. Um, you know, there was a big reaction to that. Some reformers were more reactionary than others. Some of, the, some of them were like, we can retain some of this, but, you know, some of it we need to get rid of. Others were like, let's smash it all. And along with um, the wreckage of artworks in churches, you know, pipe organs were destroyed as well. And, you know, the, some reformers felt change needs to be thorough and penetrating, that we cannot retain any Roman, anything that smacks of Romanism to us must go. Um, and so then you're left with simple songs being sung just by uh, humans, no musical accompaniment, um, and that's what you've got left. The Lutheranism that influenced the early Scottish Reformation attempted to accommodate Catholic musical traditions into worship, drawing on Latin hymns and vernacular songs, but was later replaced by Calvinist emphasis on singing and chanting the Psalms. Now we come to Charles Wesley, and we have mentioned him before. Of course, he is the younger brother of John Wesley. And so as we come to the 18th century, we find set within the musical and artistic richness of the Church of England of the 18th century and the religious and intellectual legacy of the English tradition of religious dissenters and nonconformists, John and Charles Wesley came onto the scene. And when we talked about John Wesley, we talked about his, his, the tension that he had within the Church of England. He did not want to break from the church, but he wanted to bring what is essentially a renewal movement into the church. Charles Wesley did likewise. And here you see a picture of him, and this is known as the lily portrait because there are white lilies in the lower left-hand corner of the painting. And this is... Uh, Charles Wesley as, as a young man. Charles Wesley, younger brother of John Wesley, was born in 1701 and followed in his older brother's footsteps in education and faith, matriculating at Oxford. And of course, he had the same type of upbringing. His uh, very religious, devout parents, 
his uh, father, who was a priest in the Church of England, Samuel, and his mother, Susanna. Um, again, he had the same type of uh, background uh, in terms of upbringing and education as did John. And when he was at Oxford, he was involved in the Holy Club. We, ta we talked about that when we talked about John Wesley, um, a group of devout Christian men who wanted more than just attending a service on a Sunday. They wanted to grow in their relationship with Christ. <clears throat> now, he was ordained a priest in the Church of England in 1735, as his father and older brother John had been. And like John, Charles had an awakening experience. And this is essentially a conversion experience, being born again, as some would describe it. In 1738, the Wesley brothers had religious experiences. Charles experienced a conversion on May 21st, 1738, and John had a similar experience in Aldersgate Street at the house of John Bray in London just three days later. And again, Charles is interacting with the Moravians. Remember, we talked about the Moravians and their influence upon John Wesley, while Charles Wesley was influenced by the Moravians as well. Charles felt renewed strength to spread the gospel to ordinary people, and it was around then that he began to write the poetic hymns for which he would become known. In January 1739, he was appointed as curate to serve at St. Mary's Church, Islington, but was forced to resign when the church wardens objected to his evangelical preaching. Later that same year, finding that they were unwelcome inside parish churches, the Wesley brothers took to preaching to crowds in open fields. And along with George Whitefield, you know, they were going wherever a group would listen to them. In Newcastle, Charles established its first Methodist society in September of 1742, and he faced mob violence at Wednesbury and Sheffield in 1743 and at Devizes in 1747. I mean, it's really hard for us to think of this happening today. People being so upset at Methodists that they're going to you know, crash their meetings and harm them physically and throw them out of town. It, you know, to us, it's like, what? They're Methodists. They're nice people. <laughs> Why are you so upset? You know, and they're preaching the good news of the gospel. But again, because of the social and, and political factors, they were, they were not staying within the confines of the Church of England. They weren't choosing to break from it, but they weren't literally following what the church uh, was teaching them and what the church wanted. Um, and that led to a lot of problems. So increasingly, in his later years, Charles became the mouthpiece of the so-called church Methodists. Uh, he was less revolutionary than his brother John. He was very strongly opposed to a separation of Methodist, Methodism from its Anglican roots. And in some ways, um, you know, Charles had sort of a different path than John in later years. His health was often not good. Um, it, you know, he couldn't go back and forth to, between Europe and America the way George Whitefield could. Um, and he basically stayed in England, wrote his hymns, and ministered in his parish church. 
And in the 1780s, he was especially dismayed by his brother's ordination of priests to serve in America, which he criticized in a published poem. You know, if you recall when we were talking about John Wesley, you know, uh, Methodists are wanting to preach the gospel in the new world, and yet there's no, you know, real church structure that they have theirs, and John Wesley is starting to ordain lay people and basically saying to them, well, you know, you've been in, in discipleship groups and you've studied the Bible and I think you're ready and I think you're a good person, so you go and be a minister in the new world. And Charles thought that was wrong. Um, you know, he thought they should all stay within the Church of England. And of course, in America, that would have meant they would have, have, have stayed within the Episcopal Church. Charles Wesley is perhaps best known today for being a prolific hymn writer. And this is really where he excelled. Among the collections or hymnals of Wesley's hymns published in his lifetime were hymns on God's everlasting love, published in 1741 and reissued in 1742, hymns on the Lord's Supper, 1745, and short hymns on select passages of the Holy Scriptures, 1762, together with others celebrating the major festivals of the Christian year. His hymns are marked by their strong doctrinal content, notably the Arminian insistence on the universality of God's love, a richness of scriptural and literary allusion, and the variety of his metrical and stanza forms. They are considered to have had a significant influence, not only on Methodism, but on Christian worship and modern theology, especially within Protestant evangelical churches. It is said that Wesley wrote a hymn a day for many years, bringing the total to more than 6,000. There are some scholars who believe he really wrote upwards of 10,000 hymns. Scholars note that Wesley's conversion experience in 1738, or the Awakening, had a clear impact on his doctrine as expressed in his writings especially the doctrine concerning the power of the Holy Spirit. The change was most prominent in his hymns written after the, the same year, in other words, the year of his conversion. In hymn number 62, From Hymns and Prayers to the Trinity, he writes, The Holy Ghost in part we know, for with us he resides, our whole of good to him we owe, whom by his grace he guides. He doth our virtuous thoughts inspire, the evil he averts, and every seed of good desire he planted in our hearts. This hymn expresses the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, man's depravity, and his personal accountability to God. Now, here is just a tiny little sample of uh, Charles Wesley's prolific output of hymns, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. Some of these may be familiar to you. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we sing that at Christmas as a Christmas carol. Soldiers of Christ, arise, rejoice, the Lord is King, and can it be? Christ the Lord is risen today. In the Episcopal Church in which I was raised, Christ the Lord is risen today was always sung at Easter. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. 
Come, thou long-expected Jesus. That was also one I sang as a child. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Arise, my soul, arise. So these are with us today, and I'm sure many of these are familiar to you. Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley and other evangelical hymn writers well understood that the average Christian believes the theology they sing. By the time he died, Wesley had produced 6,000 to 9,000, or maybe as high as 10,000, sacred hymns and songs, a staggering achievement for one lifetime. Watts himself penned around 750, a feat overshadowed only by Wesley's seemingly superhuman effort. The legacy of Watts and Wesley is with us today, expressing the timeless truths of God's unfailing love toward mankind in the gospel. So that concludes my presentation. Uh, we have a minute or two for any questions or comments.